Good morning once again. For the sake of those who are new with us this morning, for the last few weeks we have been involved in a series which we've entitled The Battle for Truth. And through this series we've been endeavoring to warn you about certain false teachings that have infiltrated into the church. Now, it's been a heavy series, and if you're new with us, you might be wondering, man, this is heavy stuff, but it's important territory that we need to cover. I, I believe that this, these false teachings are really the beginning of the great apostasy which Paul warned would strike the church in the last days. The word apostasy, as we've already said, means a departure from, a falling away from. And in the context that Paul used it, of course, he was talking about a time when many in the church, I'm not saying they're all true Christians, but many in the church would fall away from the faith, from sound doctrine. And once again, he said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, the last days, some would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. He said to the Thessalonian church, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that they will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition. So here Paul links the falling away or the great apostasy that's going to affect the church with the coming of the Antichrist. And I believe that we are getting very near to the coming of the Antichrist onto the world scene, which we know as evangelical Christians, the Bible teaches that seven years after he rises to power, he will bring the second coming of Jesus Christ to the planet Earth to establish his millennial kingdom. We have entered into one of the most, if not the most, dangerous periods in human history. What makes it so dangerous, you might be thinking? The danger is in the deception that it brings to the people of this world. Now, Paul tried to warn the people of God of this coming deception. Peter warned us. So did Jude and John and even the Lord Jesus himself. When his disciples came to him one day and said, Lord, tell us what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age. And the first thing he said was, take heed that no one deceives you. And then he went on to describe that the time just prior to a second coming would be characterized by unprecedented worldwide religious deception. And yet with all of these warnings to watch and be vigilant against false teachers and the heresies that they will try to bring into the church in the last days, I'm sorry to say the church has not been vigilant. The church has lowered its guard and has embraced Christianized doctrines of demons all in the name of biblical Christianity. And that's what this study has been all about. I think the main reason for this, and as I've thought about this, I really think that the main reason for this is because Christians have become more and more experientially oriented and less and less doctrinally oriented over the last 50 years or so. And I believe this is what has opened the door to these various winds of false doctrine that have now come blowing through the church and are sweeping many Christians away from the truth into demonic deception. And what is making so many Christians so susceptible to these deceptions? It is because they are letting their experiences be self-authenticating. 
Listen to me. Today, the mentality seems to be if the experience is positive and the results are good and beneficial, then the experience must be from God because they reason this way. The devil doesn't do anything good for us. So if the experience is good, the results are positive, must be from God. Let me just say this. That is one of the quickest ways that I know of to get into trouble spiritually. Doesn't the Bible warn us that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light to deceive? Don't you think that he will do some good things for people, bring some money their way, or heal their body in some way, if by doing these things he can deceive them? Satan has no problem giving some good in the temporal if it means he can deceive and destroy a person forever in the eternal. It is what some have called the beautiful side of evil. And by that, they mean that Satan will give people beautiful and positive and beneficial experiences to use as bait to hook and reel them into deception and ultimately into destruction. Experience must never be used to authenticate truth, no matter how good or how positive it may seem. The reverse must always be the case. Truth must always be used to validate the experience. And I'm talking about the truth of God, of course, the Word of God. Even as Jesus said, Father, thy word is truth. The Word of God alone is to be the gauge by which we judge and authenticate every spiritual experience. Give you an example. You remember in Acts chapter 2, Jesus already rose from the dead, ascended back to his Father, and told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they were there 10 days in an upper room, praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit. And suddenly on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And the disciples began to speak in other languages that they had never learned. They began to speak in tongues, other dialects, Praising God, this had never happened before. This was a brand new spiritual experience or phenomenon. And Jerusalem was loaded with pilgrims from all over the known world who had come for the Feast of Pentecost. And they heard these disciples, 120, praising God in their various languages. And they said, men and brethren, what does this mean? And Peter stood up and said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel giving a strong scriptural foundation for the spiritual experience that was now taking place. Listen to me. When it comes to any experiences that the church is promoting or practicing today, if you can't find strong scriptural basis for it in the Word of God, I'm talking about strong scriptural basis. Not that you take a couple of verses out of context and twist them to say what you want them to. If you can't, like Peter... Point to the experience and say, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel or Jeremiah or the Lord Jesus or one of the apostles, then you better not mess with it because you do so to your own peril. I'm just warning you. Now, having said all that by way of introduction, let me say that one of the greatest deceptions that has infiltrated into the church today is in the area of inner healing or what some have called the healing of memories. What exactly do we mean by the terms inner healing or the healing of memories? Well, let me give you a little history. The whole concept of inner healing comes from the theories of Sigmund Freud, who got them from his patients while they were under hypnosis. 
You see, when Sigmund Freud hypnotized his patients and began to ask them questions, trying to probe them to discover the source of their hang-ups and neuroses, as he did this, he came to the conclusion that all that we are as adults, our personalities, our problems, our behavior, can all be traced back to the abuse, the traumas, and the pain of our early childhood. This led Freud then to develop a couple of theories, a couple of myths. One was psychic determinism, and the other was the unconscious mind, which forms the basis of all inner healing. Psychic determinism basically says that all that we will be as adults is determined in our psyches by the age of five or six. The unconscious mind says that all of the hurts and humiliations that we have experienced as children, all of the painful experiences that we have incurred have been deposited in this unconscious mind of ours, which is a kind of emotional toxic waste dump. And all these bad childhood experiences have gotten dumped into this unconscious mind, and together they have poisoned us emotionally and have made us what we are today, in other words, a bunch of neurotic messes. And because it's my unconscious mind, I don't even remember these hurts and painful experiences. They've been repressed. But they're there, make no mistake about it. And I will never be a well-adjusted adult until I get healed from these things, hence the name inner healing or the healing of memories. Well, Sigmund Freud was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in the spirit realm. But Carl Jung, who was a contemporary of Freud and a fellow psychiatrist, was an occultist. He was in constant contact with the spirit realm. In fact, Carl Jung grew up in a haunted house where the poltergeist activity was so intense his mother kept a daily journal of it. He practiced seances. He had a spirit guide named Philemon. And Jung took Freud's basic theories, and with the input of his spirit guide, Philemon the Demon, <laughs> expanded and spiritualized Freud's basic theories. Now, the church doesn't like Freud because he was an atheist, but Carl Jung, he was a spiritual man, quote-unquote. And because he was a spiritual man, his teachings were embraced by many professing Christians in the church, like Agnes Sanford, who brought inner healing into the church, and Morton Kelsey, who was Agnes Sanford's pastor for a time. Their many books on inner healing expanded Carl Jung's teachings and dressed them up in Christian terms and have made them classics today among many evangelical Christians. Agnes Sanford, by her belief in psychotherapy and Carl Jung's philosophies, came to the conclusion that through his incarnation, Jesus, and I'm quoting her, entered into the collective unconscious of the human race, into the deep mind of every person, there being available for healing and for help. Now, that concept was what led her to develop what has come to be known as inner healing or the healing of memories. It all goes back to Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud, godless, atheists, you know, and occultists. But people in the church picked up on their writings, have brought them into the church. It's just another abysmal example of the appalling lack of discernment 
of many in the body of Christ today that read Agnes Sanford's books and consider her to be, and I'm quoting several Christian leaders who got together and made this statement about her, that she is a deeply spiritual, sound church woman and mentor. Now, you don't have to be very discerning to read Agnes Sanford's books and realize that she was out to lunch spiritually. (laughs) I mean, she's nothing more than a cultist. Her books are blatantly pagan and occultic. In her book, The Healing Light, she presents her concept of God. Listen, she calls God a life force, which is in everyone and in everything. It is a form of energy, she says, like electricity, the original force that we call God. We are part of God. He is in nature. He is nature. Folks, that's pantheism. That's Hinduism. That is the very lie that we have been trying to expose, right? The one that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the one that Satan fed Adam and Eve in the very beginning, the lie that has been growing and developing over 6,000 years, filling the earth now with all kinds of evil, false fruit. It's going to be the lie of the Antichrist when he comes, and it's infiltrated into the church of Jesus Christ. How Christian leaders who ought to know better could praise Agnes Sanford as a sound, godly church woman when her writings are so obviously occultic. I'm astonished. I'm dumbfounded. She taught that everything is a matter of thought vibrations. She said that we can be made ill by negative vibrations. We can heal ourselves through positive thought vibrations. And she taught that we could even forgive the sins of others through the power of our mind. So negative thinking makes you sick. Positive thinking makes you well. You can forgive people's sins long distance through the power of your mind. She further taught that we could save people through visualization. The way you do this is you visualize in your mind some rotten, dirty scoundrel, some, some, some person that is just, oh, the worst you know, reprobate you can think of, and you visualize all those nasty qualities and evil tendencies in that person and visualize them becoming shining virtues. And by doing that, you can redeem them. So forget about the Great Commission. Forget about sending people into all the world preaching the good news to every person. We don't need to do that. We don't need to go to Africa. We don't need to send people anywhere else. Sit in your living room, get a cup of coffee, get into one of your little trances, visualize some native in Africa. Say, can save all kinds of people that way. Saves a lot of airfare and uh, all kinds of stuff. No eating bugs or nothing. Well, Morton Kelsey, who was Agnes's pastor for a while, he believed that his own mother died for him just as Jesus did. He also called Jesus the greatest of all shamans. Shaman is a term that anthropologists use to denote witch doctors, medicine men, wizards, sorcerers. So here is someone who is calling Jesus Christ a sorcerer, not the precious son of God. He's a sorcerer. And so through the teachings of Sanford, Kelsey, which have now been embraced by many Christian psychologists in the church and pastors and teachers, inner healing has come into the church and has taken hold. Why is this? Well, I'll give you my take on it. 
I believe that there are a lot of Christians in the body of Christ who are wrestling with depression or bad habits or something else. And they want to be set free of these things, and I don't blame them. And it's just easier to find some kind of a formula or technique that I can latch onto, go through a set of steps to receive deliverance, than it is to take the time every single day to open the Word of God and to read it and to study it and to pray and to draw close to God as I do that God will then give me victory more and more until I am transformed more and more into the image of Christ. It's just easier, isn't it, to latch on to a technique or a methodology. It's a lot easier to blame something in my past for why I am today than to take responsibility right now for my problems. And that's my take on it. But it's taken hold. I think it's here to stay, although I hope it's not. And those promoting it are telling Christians that they will never be all that God desires them to be or really be able to bear the fruit of the Spirit in their lives until they are set free from these destructive memories. Well, at this point, a couple of scriptures come to mind, and we could give dozens, but two just jump off the pages of Scripture to me at this point. The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Hey, when I receive Christ, I am a brand new creation. My past doesn't have any more hold on me. Jesus Christ has set me free. Now, that freedom may not come all in one fell swoop. It's mine, though. If I just keep drawing close to Jesus, I'm going to have that total victory. That's a promise from God. And Paul went on to say to the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, listen to what Paul said. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. I don't need to go anywhere else to be made whole. Everything I need is already in Christ. Well, you might be sitting there thinking, well, what do these people recommend, though? I mean, I'm just curious. What do they recommend that we do to get in touch with all of these painful memories? I mean, if they've been repressed, how do we get in touch with them? And even if we could somehow get in touch with them, how do we receive a healing for them? Well, folks, listen carefully. This is where a goofy theory becomes a very dangerous practice. H. Norman Wright, a Christian psychologist who is well known as one of the pioneers of this method of counseling, and others who teach Christians how to do this very thing. Explain it this way. You visualize Jesus, and then you visualize Jesus taking your hand and walking you back through time to the point of the painful memory. And you visualize Jesus laying his hand on you, healing you of that pain. Once you're healed of that pain in the past, then you will become a well-adjusted, fruitful Christian in the present. That's what they say. This, Norman Wright says, is justified because, and I'm quoting him, Christ is the Lord of time, past, present, 
and future. He transcends all time and space. Well, that's true. God is eternal. And God's presence is throughout time. And so he says, well, look, you know, Jesus is the Lord of time. I mean, you know, he's here right now, but he's also was in the past with us when we were children. He knows the pains that we incurred. He can walk us back to that particular hurt, lay his hands on it, heal us from it. That will make us a well-adjusted Christian right now in the present. But those who challenge this practice point out that Roman Catholics obtain equally good inner healing results by visualizing Mary, who is clearly not the Lord of time, who doesn't transcend all time and space. The same is true with Buddhists visualizing Buddha and Muslims visualizing Muhammad. Atheists obtain equal results by visualizing Napoleon or Alexander the Great or Abraham Lincoln. And even occultists achieve the same result by visualizing what they call power animals, like coyotes and wolves, that will then walk with them back in the, you know, through the corridors of time and to the point of the hurtful memory and devour it, making these folks now well-adjusted in the present. All of these people get the same results. It is a fact that almost all inner healing incorporates visualization into it as a necessary tool for dealing with these painful memories. Now, we have already talked about visualization last time, and we'll talk about it again more next time. But visualization has been practiced by those in the occult for thousands of years. Sorcerers, diviners, witches have known for centuries that the most powerful and effective methodology for contacting the spirit realm is through visualization. The Bible never teaches anywhere, nor did any of God's prophets or apostles ever practice visualization in the pages of Scripture. Never. I don't care what people will tell you. They'll tell you, yes, they did, and the examples they give are completely lame. Because what they are teaching with regard to visualization, creative visualization, is never taught nor practiced anywhere in the pages of Scripture by God's people. It is an occult practice that has been present in the occult for thousands of years. In fact, any methodology, including visualization, that is used to conjure up anyone from the dead, including Jesus, who is not dead, of course, but is in heaven, is called divination in the Bible, and it's expressly forbidden by God. I'll just read you one passage, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Here's what God said, and this was in preparation for God's people entering into the promised land. Listen to what God said before they entered the promised land. When you come into the land, which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things, listen, are an abomination to the Lord. Christians who do this will say, well, wait a minute. I'm a Christian. It's okay if we do it. When the occultists do it, it's wrong. It's bad. When Christians do it, we have God in mind. God said, anyone who practices this kind of thing it is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you, the Canaanites, 
You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess listened to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. And yet today Christians are being taught to visualize Jesus for healing or for meditation purposes or as a prayer technique or for guidance in financial matters or for help with difficult decisions. And I know maybe some of you are thinking, but wait a minute, what is really wrong with it if it helps me draw close to God? And others would say, you know, Phil, you and others who oppose this kind of thing, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Just because people in the occult use it doesn't mean that we can't learn some things and use it in the church. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, I like what Dave Hunt says. He's a Christian apologist. He says, every time somebody says that to me, I tell them, show me the baby. (laughs) Folks, I've strained the water. I can't find the baby. Because there is no baby. There is no... Listen. The fact that any Christian could think that any doctrine of demon can be used by God to teach us anything in the church baffles me. This came from the mouth of demons. And I tell you, it's just, it's just mind-boggling to me that Christians would be so naive as to think, so what if it's in the occult? So what if it's demonic? We can learn from it. I'm amazed. Where in the scriptures does God ever teach us anything through doctrines of demons? He tells us to stay away from them. Stay away from them. What's really wrong with it if it helps me draw close to God? I mean, after all, as one executive director or executive editor of a Catholic publication said, and I quote, those in the church who felt that the modern church had become too rationalistic found in Carl Jung support for a more mystical, experiential religion. Now, I want you to hang on to that. We're going to revisit that as we close. This is part of the problem today. Christians are no longer satisfied with a rationalistic approach to their Christianity. In other words, loving God with all their what? Mind. I want to love God with all my emotion. And I'm tired of sound doctrine, it seems like people are saying. And because of it, they're looking for experiences now in all kinds of places. And this gentleman says that because many in the church thought that the church had become too rationalistic, and because they were looking for more of a mystical experiential religion, they began to turn to the writings of Carl Jung. The charismatic renewal, with its emphasis on spiritual experiences and inner healing, has been a natural field for interest in Jung. And this is, then he went on to say this, listen carefully. Truth is truth wherever it is found. Whatever is true in union psychology can be adapted and used by Christians. Now, that's a very important statement. And I personally believe it is the key to understanding how so many of these doctrines of demons have infiltrated into the church. It's because of the mentality that all truth is God's truth. And we'll take it from the mouth of the devil himself if we have to. All truth is God's truth which again gets into the trap of letting experience validate truth. Or in other words, if the experience produces good and positive results, must be from God. God, Only God does good for us, right? The devil won't do good for us. He doesn't want to help us. 
So if the experience is good, the results are positive, must be from God, therefore it must be truth. All truth is God's truth. That's pragmatism. That's letting the end justify the means. Folks, people have had all kinds of positive experiences with things like yoga, transcendental meditation, hypnosis, seances, consulting with mediums. And yet we know that none of these things are from God. The issue isn't positive, it's truth. It's truth. The truth from the Word of God that tells us what spiritual experiences are valid and which are not valid, which are of God and which are not of God. That's why the Bible admonishes us to test all things, all spiritual experiences, and to hold fast to those that are good. How do you test these experiences? The Word of God, which is the absolute objective standard that we need to test all spiritual experiences by. But because of the influence of the positive confession movement and its emphasis on the terms positive and negative, which, by the way, you won't find in the Bible because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's not some kind of a force. Positive and negative, that sounds like electricity. But because of all the emphasis on positive and negative, many Christians have come to equate positive with good and God and negative with evil and Satan. The problem with that is that sometimes the truth can sound negative and a lie can sound very positive. Let me give you an example. Remember in the Garden of Eden? God told Adam and Eve, look, there's one prohibition. You can't eat the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat that fruit, you what? You're going to die. That's about as negative as you can get. But it was the truth. Satan comes along and says, oh, no, 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 you won't surely die. You'll become a god. Hey, that sounds very positive. But it was a lie. See, the issue is not positive or negative. It's truth versus error. And often people's concepts of what is positive and negative are based on their feelings or on their circumstances. So again, if the experience makes me feel good and the result in my circumstances positive, well, it must be truth. And therefore, it must be from God because all truth is God's truth. But now we have made truth subjective based on my experiences and not objective based on what God has said. And again, I can't underscore this enough. God's truth must be the absolute standard by which I judge all spiritual experiences by. Now, you know how they're getting around this today? And I've already talked about this. God is bigger than his word. This is a, a common, you'll, you'll hear that among certain charismatics. Well, God is bigger than this. Show me in the scripture where that experience says that you're practicing. Well, it's not in the word, but God is bigger than his word. In other words, God is not limited to the pages of scripture. You're limiting God. No, I'm not. I'm honoring God, the God who said, I put my word even above my name, and I will do nothing except that which I reveal to my servants, the prophets, and the pages of Scripture. Because how are we going to test experiences and prove that they're of God if God does things outside the pages of Scripture? Can you see the logic in that? And how we need to, we're not dishonoring God by limiting what he does to the pages of Scripture. We are honoring him. By being faithful to what he has told us. These are the last days. Jesus said the spiritual deception would be so rampant, if possible, it would even deceive the elect. 
But I've warned you, I've told you beforehand. And that's exactly what God has done through the pages of Scripture. He has warned us beforehand of what to stay away from in the way of spiritual experiences. But the church has bought into this stuff lock, stock, and barrel. And we have made truth subjective based on our experiences. And that's why so many in the church are falling into demonic deception. And again, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, oh, but how can it be wrong? It feels so right. I mean, it gives me peace. It makes me feel good. It, it, it's helped me. Well, drugs will give you peace and make you feel good too. But that doesn't mean God wants you messing with them. The problem with that is that feelings can be manipulated through experience. And our perception of reality can be distorted through our experiences and feelings. And that's when evil can be made to seem good. This week I watched a documentary uh, on drug abuse. And in the course of this documentary, the uh, expert that was doing the teaching said it was showing the various kinds of drugs today and the effect on the human body. He was talking about LSD at one point. And he said, do you realize that a lot of people that take LSD wind, wind up committing suicide? But not willingly. And it's not because they're having a bad trip. It's because LSD has a way of blocking out from our senses reality going on around us. Our senses bring into our minds reality, what our circumstances, our surroundings. LSD is a way of, of shutting down those receptors and creating in our mind a false reality. And one of the things it does, it gives you a euphoric feeling, but the, one of the things it does is it makes, and I've never taken LSD, but, but from what he said, it makes your limbs feel as light as feathers so that you feel literally like you can fly. And that's what happens. People wind up jumping off of buildings thinking that they can fly. That's how they commit suicide. See, the experience has distorted their perception of reality. And feelings were manipulated. And the end result was death. That's exactly how false doctrine is, by the way. It manipulates feelings through experiences. It gives you a false sense of reality and can wind up if you continue on in it, it can wind up killing you. Sometimes physically, but always spiritually. That's why we cannot let our experiences be our guide. We absolutely cannot. Why is it not only wrong, but dangerous to visualize Jesus or God, or if you're a Catholic, Mary, if it helps you draw close to God? We're going to answer that next time. It's just too big a subject to take all in one, one time. There are some real dangers with regard to visualization. And folks, let me just say this. This may be the first time in your life you've ever even heard of inner healing. And after today, hopefully you'll leave here with, with, with it set in your heart. You're never going to ever mess with it. Thank God. But this has entered into the church and is found in other areas too. We are seeing today in the church, because a lot of people 
are feeling very unfulfilled by the very rationalistic kind of Christianity that we have today. And, you know, I, I, I interpret some of that to mean they're, they're not really happy with churches that just teach the word. They want to experience more. So what's happening is you have some in the church, and I'll talk a little bit about this next week, who are leading the church back to the medieval mystics, these desert fathers like Ignatius, who founded the Jesuits, and others who practice visualization as a form of prayer and meditation. We see the next big thing that is already hitting the church. You know what it is? It's called the emerging church. And they are moving backwards into medieval mystical practices, visualizing Jesus, visualizing the apostles, because they want to draw closer to God, bless their hearts. They really do want to draw close to God. But see, the devil picks up on our desire as Christians to draw close to God and will try to counterfeit the path to God with mystical experiences that will not bring us closer to God, but will actually in the end bring us away from God. See, we need to understand what this is all about. Inner healing, you may never have heard of it. You may, after today, don't even intend to ever get near it. Praise God. It's deeper than that. And I'm looking at this series to be kind of like, almost like a Christian college course in apologetics. I really want you to be equipped in these last days. I want you to understand what's out there so that you can better contend for the faith. It's very important. And I'll tell you the truth, we are moving very quickly towards the return of Jesus Christ. But remember what Jesus warned us about. He said, take heed that no one deceive you. The only protection against error is the truth. And that's why we want to really teach you what God has actually said and warn you about what is being taught in different places in the church. That you can help folks that you know and love who are involved in these things to come out of it, but that you yourself never get into it. So I think you'll be very interested next week. You'll be shocked. To be shocked to find out how dangerous it is to actually try to visualize Jesus and God and, and anyone or anything else for that matter. And we'll see that next time. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, Lord, that you have given us in your word everything that we need for life and godliness. Father, thank you for your word, which is a light unto our path. And if we walk in the light of your word, we will never be deceived or go astray. Father, these are the last days. I pray that you work in this church, that we would love your truth with all of our heart and cling tenaciously to it because the winds of doctrine are blowing, false doctrine through the church. And if we are not clinging tightly to your word, we are going to be swept away. Give us grace, Lord, that our roots will go deep into the truths of your word, that we could be like a tree, standing firm by the rivers of water, whose leaves will never fail and will bear fruit in every season for your glory. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.